listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. and welcome to episode 29 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I'm chatting to Ariel, whose son Onyx died after she went into premature labour just over 20 weeks of pregnancy. And there were some things I really loved about um, Ariel's story and how she remembers Onyx in particular, how she included Onyx in her daughter Lazuli's birth uh, the following year, and also how she honoured his memory as part of the Day of the Dead and Day of the Little Angel celebration, which is um, a big tradition which you might have come across because it's celebrated in sort of Central and South America. It's not something we necessarily routinely do in the UK, but um, it's around the same time as Halloween and All Saints Day, and I actually think it's it's a much nicer celebration than Halloween. It's a way to honour those we love and who have passed on. So I really hope you enjoy that interview. Before we get into the interview, I've got um, a couple of big announcements today, actually, about the future of the podcast and how you can help me support it. So first of all, um, I have a bit of a sensitive announcement to make. And if you follow me on Instagram, you may have already seen this on my feed. Um, It's not something I'm going to talk about a lot or routinely on the podcast, but I did want to let you all know that I'm currently expecting my rainbow baby. Um, So obviously, pregnancy after loss is a bit of a roller coaster. um, But we are really grateful that we have we've got this far with with our baby and we're really hoping that we'll be able to welcome them home in a few months um so trying to stay positive um and very grateful that we've been given this opportunity um to get pregnant again and to have a little brother or sister for sky so as i say this isn't going to turn into a pregnancy after loss podcast. I'm not going to be, you know, giving you updates every week about how my pregnancy is progressing or anything like that. Because I know it's really sensitive. I know because I've been there that if you've recently suffered a loss, it's really hard to hear about other people's pregnancies, even even if you wish them all the best and wish them well. And I also know that there will be a lot of you listening who are struggling with trying to conceive again, who may have even given hope, up hope of having a rainbow baby. I've learned to, to kind of live with that. Um, and it's not something that I, I don't want it to be a trigger or a reason for you to stop listening to the podcast. So as always, in some podcast episodes, we talk about pregnancy after loss. Um, we do in this one actually with Ariel, and we talk about sort of the challenges of parenting after loss with her daughter. But I will always give you a warning when we're talking about pregnancy after loss in the show notes. So, you know, you can decide whether you want to skip that part um, or just turn off and, and not listen to that. So that's my announcement. So obviously that 
potentially means a few changes for the podcast. Now, I started this podcast more than six months ago, and I fully intended and still do intend for it to be an ongoing long-term thing. Um, I have no intentions of stopping running the podcast at all. I think I think I found it really valuable as a way of, I guess, helping to, you know, parents my daughter who isn't here and isn't in my arms. Um, and also as a way of giving back something to the the baby loss community and hopefully helping people who are in the same situation as I found myself in last year um, and just needed to hear about other stories, um, to get hope from those stories or just reassurance that actually sometimes life is really crap and you're really down in the dumps and you know what, that's okay. It's really rough. Um, but you will get through it. So the podcast isn't going anywhere. However, in order to keep producing it, to be able to keep producing it weekly, I am going to need a little bit of help and assistance to do that. So I'm I'm not very good at asking for help. <laughs> partly a British thing and possibly partly just a me thing. It is possibly the thing I find hardest. <laughs> but um, for the sake of the podcast, I am putting a call out for volunteers or well, for two things actually so the first thing um I'm asking for help with is to help me physically produce the podcast episodes so I'm looking for a number of volunteers to help me keep it running over the next few months and there are two particular roles here that I want to fill firstly um an audio editor so at the moment, it takes me between an hour and three hours just to edit the rough audio of each interview for the podcast. Altogether, it takes me around probably four to six hours per episode to produce the podcast. Um, and realistically, I'm not going to have the time to do that every week for the next few months. So an editor would help take you know a massive amount of the burden off my shoulders um, to do that. So if you're interested in doing that, ideally, you would have some experience working with audio. So the program I use is a free software called Audacity. Um, if you've got experience with that, fantastic. If you have another software you use, that's okay. Um, and if you are interested and you want to skill up and, you know, you don't have experience, but you think and you're willing to learn, then we might be able to arrange some training on that. So I'm looking ideally for one person or possibly for two people to share the load, but ideally for one person who'd be able to commit to doing that um, each week or when when I get the interviews in. So the timing can be flexible with that as and when the interviews are done. The second um, sort of set of volunteers, volunteer or set of volunteers I'm looking for are guest hosts. So people who are essentially um, going to provide a bit of a different voice on the podcast for the odd episode. And I will mix this in because I will have some of my own episodes I'll be doing. Um, but just a few guest hosts who are willing to contact people to be interviewed, to set up those interviews using the software um, which I provide. And conduct the interviews really having a chat with people about their experiences um, of baby loss 
Um, and yeah, just being a guest host. So um, an opportunity for anyone who feels like they want to give podcasting a go and are confident um, talking to, to guests and people. If you have any questions about those roles, you want more information or you think you'd like to volunteer, please either message me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts or drop me an email to Alison at Footprints on Our Hearts. The second way you can help to keep the podcast going is open to everyone. <laughs> you know, you don't need to commit time or skills to do this. Um, so after a lot of consideration, I have set up a Patreon account for the podcast. So you've probably come across Patreon or Patreon. I'm never really sure how you pronounce it because everyone seems to pronounce it in a different way. But I'm going to call it Patreon because that's what I'm used to. Anyway, it is, it's a system by which you can be a patron of a particular creator, um, a particular podcast or show or artist. Um, and you do that by pledging, you know, a certain amount every month to help them keep creating and doing what they're doing. So Footprints on Our Hearts now has its own Patreon page. You can support the podcast from just a couple of pounds a month or a few dollars a month. You know, the price of a coffee if you were actually going out to Starbucks or Costa um, at the moment. Um, I'm not sure many of us are. There are different tiers and there are benefits associated with each tier in terms of what you get for your pledge. And the reason I've started this is to help me with the financial costs and sustainability of the podcast. So um, up until now, I've been funding all the podcast uh, costs out of my own pocket. So it costs me around £35 a month, uh, British pounds, just to pay for the software and the hosting costs and, you know, the website and the things to, to literally get the podcast out there. That doesn't include any of my time. Um, so again, up to around six hours of you know producing this content. So my aim with the Patreon account is first of all, to cover those basic costs. Then um, the money I get in after that, I can hopefully use to pay my volunteer editor or give them a contribution for their time to help me again, um, take some of that time off my hands because I do believe that people should be paid for their work um, but obviously I need to have the income from the podcast to be able to do that and if I can get beyond that then other things I want to look at doing in the future are um, perhaps more special episodes added um, sort of community events um, for podcast listeners and I'd also really like to get back to doing transcriptions of the show to put those on the website um, but I would need to pay someone to do that. So if you would like to support the podcast and help me to keep it going as a weekly show moving forward then you can go to patreon.com forward slash footprints on our hearts and um, pledge your support there. And obviously that link will be in the show notes. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a, an awkward plea from me this week. <laughs> um, but I do hope that you're able to help me keep the podcast going in whatever way you are able to do and suits you. And without any further ado, let's get into this week's interview with Ariel. 
Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Ariel, whose son, Onks, was stillborn in 2018. Welcome and thank you so much for coming onto the show to share your experiences, Ariel. Thank you for having me. We're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about your son today. But before we do, I'd like to go back to the start of your journey to start a family, as sadly, Onks wasn't your first experience of baby loss. So when did you first start thinking about having a baby and what were your early experiences of pregnancy like? Yeah, so I got pregnant for the first time in 2017. Um, and it was not a planned pregnancy. I was on birth control and the birth control failed and I got pregnant. Um, it was really unexpected, but I kind of just went with it. And when I was at the point of kind of accepting that I was pregnant and getting excited, I found out there was no longer a heartbeat. And that was at the point when I should have been about 10 weeks. And I found out I was pregnant really early, maybe around four weeks. So I had already seen the heartbeat, had ultrasounds, had doctor appointments. And then when I went in for my second ultrasound, um, that's kind of when I found out that I had a missed miscarriage. And I had never actually even heard of that term before. It's not something that um, even my doctor mentioned. Uh, She just said that I was no longer pregnant, basically. And um, that was kind of my first experience. And I guess that... That must have been a whole bundle of emotions because it must have been quite a shock to find out you were pregnant to begin with and then kind of coming to terms with that and going from that kind of shock to, yes, I do want this baby and then only to, to lose it again. Yeah, it was something that like I like I said, I never heard of a missed miscarriage mm-hmm. before. I assumed that if you're having pregnancy symptoms, that you're pregnant. And um, I hadn't lost any symptoms or anything. So it came as a complete shock. And also the way that my doctor talked to me about it. I found out when I went in the room to have an ultrasound and the technician was just kind of like stopped and was like, you need to go talk to your doctor and wouldn't give me an ultrasound photo or anything. So I didn't find out until I went into the room and my doctor was um, not very kind about it at all. She was just kind of like, you're not pregnant anymore. So come back in a few days if you're not bleeding and we'll figure it out. And that was kind of it. So. Wow. That, yeah, that's um, a bit of a heartless response isn't it there's this very kind of matter of fact thing sometimes isn't there about miscarriages where um you know it's it's kind of seen as one of those things um but I feel like doctors should be more aware of that now and and more sympathetic and did that did that change your sort of thoughts on pregnancy having a baby and stuff going forward Yeah, I think it made me, I mean, I've always wanted to be a mother, but it made me really think about um, pregnancy in general and like when I would want to have another child. So when I was 10 weeks, it came as a shock because I had never heard about a miscarriage. I didn't know you could still be um, experiencing pregnancy symptoms and um, get positive pregnancy tests when the baby no longer has a heartbeat. And I ended up staying pregnant for several more weeks, almost a month total after the baby had actually passed um, from what I was told during the ultrasound um, because my body wouldn't miscarry naturally. So I needed a DNC. So that's a pretty traumatic first experience to go through of pregnancy. 
what when did you then fall pregnant for the second time and and what happened with that pregnancy yeah so I got on a different type of birth control um at my appointment actually when I had NDC my doctor told me that was the best time and so that's what I did and I got pregnant about a month later um using that birth control it was a different method because the previous one had failed so I tried something different but I still got pregnant and with that pregnancy um I had what they refer to as a natural miscarriage when I was about six weeks. I found out when I was about four weeks pregnant and two weeks later mm-hmm. is when I started having a miscarriage. And how did you feel about that compared to your first uh, experience of pregnancy loss? I think um, I kind of didn't allow myself to feel anything when I found out I was pregnant because mm-hmm. it was so soon after and I didn't really know how to feel. And I also had a lot of fears about um, miscarrying again and I didn't really know how to process those feelings. So when I found mm-hmm. out I was pregnant, um, it was scary and I didn't really know what to do or what to think. And then when I started having a miscarriage and it was very obvious this time, um, I just kind of let it happen and tried my best to not feel anything because I didn't know what else to do. I never knew that um, not grieving would have a negative impact, but that's ultimately what happened after that pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so what happens after that pregnancy, I guess for you emotionally and your thoughts around having a baby, possibly being pregnant again at some point in the future, having gone through these, you know, two traumatic experiences already. So um, after that, it was a few months later that I actually, I was trying to figure out what was going on with my body. And so I went to the doctor and I had some tests done to figure out like, why was this happening? And I was kind of just told that it's normal, that um, people have miscarriages all the time and that they're very common in the first trimester. And so I had to go to a few doctors in order to get some testing done. And ultimately I found out that um, I was diagnosed with secondary infertility. Um, that wasn't connected from what they told me to me having miscarriages, but it was connected to me possibly being able to get pregnant in the future. And they actually told me that I would need IVF, that my tubes were completely blocked, and that there was no way that I was probably going to be able to have a child um, or to conceive naturally. And so that was probably the biggest shock because I was like, I've been pregnant before. What do you mean? Um And so the fact that I lost two babies and then they were telling me that I probably wasn't going to be able to have another child biologically, it was just like the biggest hit that I felt. Gosh, that, I mean, I think I'd I'd almost be questioning, you know, are are you sure about this? Because not only have you had two pregnancies, you've had two pregnancies while you've been on birth control, which, you know, suggests you're pretty, you know, you're pretty fertile. And to suddenly receive, I mean, Obviously, that can't have been what you were expecting at all when you when you sort of walked into that room. So that must have been an incredible shock. Yeah, it was. I didn't know what to think. I felt like um, after getting pregnant to begin with, I was like, okay, so I know I do want to have a baby. I just don't really know when. But then to be told, like, that's completely off the table. You're not going to be able to do that for the most part. Um, I was just like, I, I didn't know how to envision my future after that. Mm-hmm. So what happened next after that then? Um, so after that, um, I knew there was no way I was probably going to be able to afford IVF. So I kind of just, I got off of birth control and I was like, um, I just didn't expect to ever get pregnant. I just thought I was going to be someone who didn't ever get pregnant again. And then about four months later, maybe at three, um, I found out I was pregnant. 
And this was a little bit after Mother's Day. So it was kind of a bittersweet feeling. It was my first Mother's Day after having miscarriages. And so um, when I found out, it was a complete shock. I didn't know. Um, I, honestly, my fear was that it was an ectopic pregnancy. I thought my luck was so bad that if I got pregnant after, it would not be a viable pregnancy. And how did you feel during those first few weeks of the pregnancy then I guess going up to that kind of the the point at which you'd um lost your first baby so I guess around that kind of 10 11 12 week point yeah so um it was really really scary I thought I was going to have a miscarriage I just like I didn't want to connect to the baby at all because I was like I'm just going to lose this baby too and I didn't know um, honestly like if I would survive a third loss I didn't know how I would be able to process those feelings so it was very very scary but ultimately at the 12 week mark um, I decided to announce my pregnancy which is what um, I had seen from other people you know once you get out of that first trimester you're technically in the safe zone or so you're told and so that's when I um, decided to announce that I was pregnant. Yeah, that magic, that magic safe zone. And how did your pregnancy with him go? Um, It was very miserable, to be honest. I had what's called hyperemesis. Um, So it's like 24-7 morning sickness. I need fluid replacements constantly. Um, I couldn't eat or drink. I lost like 30 pounds in my first trimester. Yeah. That's not, that's not, that's not healthy. (laughs) Yeah. And so it was very, very scary. But from what my doctor had told me, um, you know, I was very, very sick, but Onyx was doing perfectly fine. He was getting all the nutrients that he needed. And so I thought, okay, I'm out of the first trimester, even though I'm super sick and feel terrible, uh, my baby is safe. And so that's kind of what was going on. Okay. And then um, how did things progress after that? And at what point did you realize that something was going wrong? Yeah. So um, I constantly felt like something bad was going to happen. And so I would go to get like an elective ultrasound just to see how he was doing. And that I would do that every few weeks because my medical insurance wouldn't cover like having um, an ultrasound with my doctor. And so it was an elective one you pay out of pocket. And um my anatomy ultrasound was coming up. And so once that was scheduled, I was like, okay, things should be fine. But the day before my anatomy ultrasound was scheduled, I started feeling really, really intense cramping. And I didn't know if it was Braxton Hicks or what. So when I called the nurse's hotline, they told me not to worry, but my gut told me to go and get checked out. And ultimately I found out that I was in labor. Um, I was 20 weeks and three days at that point. Gosh. And what, what was going through your mind when they told you that? I had assumed that I would just be on bed rest and that I would be able to stay pregnant. But ultimately, I was really, really scared because um, they weren't really talking to me. The nurses weren't talking to me. The doctors weren't talking to me. Um, And so I just was really confused the entire time about what was going to happen. Um, And then they told me that there was nothing that they could do, that I was too early and that my baby was going to be born at any moment. Gosh. And... And they told you, or presumably you knew that your baby wasn't going to survive that. Was was he still alive? Did they check the heartbeat and everything in in your womb? Yeah, they did an ultrasound, and I saw the ultrasound, and um, it he was moving 
everything was fine. His heartbeat was great. Mm -hmm. And um, what was happening is that my amniotic sac was starting to bulge. And so my cervix had opened entirely. I was about, um, well, not entirely. I was about three centimeters dilated, I believe. And so my cervix had started to prepare to give birth. And so the sac was um, coming out of my body at that point, but he was still inside. Gosh, and there's nothing, and there's nothing they could do to stop it. That was you must have felt so helpless. I did. It was very, very scary. And um, I had called my mom to the hospital, and she was asking the doctors, like, "What are you doing? Why is nothing happening?" And so um, we got a specialist who came in to give a second opinion, and she said um, they put me in what's called the Trendelenburg, I believe, position. So I was upside down for ten hours in a hospital bed with the hope that the sack would go back in and that um, I would just be on bed rest at the hospital for the remainder of my pregnancy and that everything would be fine. But the, that position didn't work. And ultimately they told me to just go home and wait until I give birth. So they sent you home. They didn't keep you in. No, they refused to. And I got uh, several opinions because I felt like that was the wrong decision to make. And they told me that I was too early, that no doctor would do what's called a cerclage to close my cervix because of the mm -hmm. risk of infection. And so they gave me the option to um, induce labor and um, to just have him right then and there or to just wait and see if I could stay pregnant. And my hope was that um, I was doing lots of research. And so I found that there were lots of babies that um, stayed in for longer. And so my hope was that I would be able to stay pregnant. Okay. So you went back home and then what, what happened after that? So they told me to just go home and not do any bed rest because it was inevitable. I was going to give birth, but I was like, I'm going to put myself on bed rest mm -hmm. because surely this can do something. It's not going to hurt anything. And so, um, I was on bed rest for the remaining of that day, but then the next day in the afternoon, um, I got up to go to the bathroom and it was really scary to go to the bathroom because I could feel the sack coming out of my body every single time I moved, but I, I had to go to the bathroom. And um, the last time I went, um, I went to the bathroom and I could feel the sack coming out of me. And then the sack completely ruptured in the toilet. And so that's when oh I knew goodness. that I was in labor because there was a lot of blood and I've seen different births before. And so I knew that this something was wrong because there was so much blood. It overfilled over the toilet. Gosh, I can't, that must have been so terrifying. It was. And I didn't know, I had never seen a baby that was 20 weeks before. And so I was like, I don't know if my baby fell in the toilet because there was so much blood. And so um, we ended up rushing to the hospital. Yeah. And presumably you were admitted at that point. And yes. did your did your labor then progress? And um, It went very, very quickly. I having very intense cramps. Um, I later found out that I had what's called a placental abruption. So my placenta had detached and that's why there was so much blood. Um, and so not even maybe 20 minutes after I was admitted, I actually ended up pushing. And when, when he was born, did they give you to him to hold? How were you feeling at that point? Yeah, while I was in labor, um, they weren't really telling me anything. Um, and so I told them, I said, I want to hold him. And they said, okay. And um, so as they told me he was going to be stillborn, they said, you know, he's not going to have a heartbeat. He's going to be stillborn. And I was like, okay. So um, I didn't expect him to be born alive. But when he was being born, my mom said that he was kicking as he came out because he was breech. And so um, I 
it like in the split second, I had to change my mind to, okay, I'm going to hold my dead baby to he's alive, but he's not going to stay alive. So. Mm-hmm. And was that the case then? Was he born alive? He was, um, he was moving. He, um, was kind of just like wiggling around a lot and he was opening his mouth. And the nurse told me that that's a lot of times what babies do when they try to breathe, but because he was so young, um, his lungs were not developed at all. And at that point, my mom was getting very upset because she was like, why are you guys not doing anything? You know, obviously he's trying to breathe and he's moving. And the nurse at this point, she was starting to tear up, but she said, there's nothing we can do. He's too small. Our, um, our tubes to help resuscitate babies are too small or too big for his lungs. That's heartbreaking just to have to watch him and, and hold him. Yeah, it was. And um, it was very odd experience looking back because it felt like a very normal birth. It felt like this is what happens when people give birth full term and their baby's alive. Like they put the baby on your chest and the baby's moving and everything's fine, but it wasn't. Um, and I knew that at some point he was going to pass. And so they kept checking his heart rate every couple of minutes and um, I was holding him on my chest at this point. They did skin to skin. Um, And after 46 minutes is when they checked and he no longer had a heartbeat at that point. Uh Well, I'm glad that you did get to hold him and you got to experience even that short time of, of his life as heartbreaking as it must've been. What happened afterwards? Did the hospital Uh, give you much support so for example in the UK and it does vary from hospital to hospital you know what what experience you have and what staff you have but quite a lot of the time there's a specific bereavement suite you can go to to spend some time with your baby or you know you can have photos and make memories and that type of thing were you offered anything like that? Yeah, so um, we spent some time in that regular room. It was just a regular labor and delivery room. And then after maybe an hour or two, um, they moved me to a postpartum suite. But that was in a separate area than where all the other mothers were. That way they told me I wouldn't hear other babies cry or other moms be in labor or anything like that. So they moved me over there. So I didn't actually leave the hospital until the next day. So I was there for a full day and um, they gave me what's called a bereavement box. So it has little things that you can make memories like footprints. The nurses took photos. I had really amazing nurses um, who tried to give me as much support, I think, as they were able to. And um, I had someone come in and um, do like uh, essential oils. And so what they do is they put an essential oil with your baby and then like it mixes and then you get to keep that scent. Um, and so like, I have a little lamb that has, um, like a baby scent basically on it. And so, um, I was able to have him in the room and, um, all of that. So you, you have a smell, you have a smell that reminds yeah. you of him. That's amazing. Cause scent is such a, it's such a powerful thing in terms of evoking kind of memories and things as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really lucky. I didn't know that that was even something that would be offered and, uh, I've since realized that that's not something that everyone gets. So I feel really lucky that I was able Mm -hmm. to hold him and have time with him um, before we had to decide ultimately what to do with his body. Yeah. And that's a decision that no one should ever, you know, ever have to make. You kind of, you don't even 
think about the fact that it's a possibility and then suddenly you're like well do you want a funeral do you want a cremation do you want this do you want that and 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 it's really hard and you I mean it sounds like your body had also been through quite a lot of trauma in terms of the placental eruption and everything were there sort of any lingering concerns around that and and your kind of future health in terms of that yeah, so I actually hemorrhaged after I had him. And so there was a lot of blood. I didn't need a transfusion, but it was um, very intense. And I um, just needed to be monitored a lot. And so over that night, they monitored me. Um, but there wasn't really a concern that was mentioned. Actually, when I was in labor with Onyx, um, there were doctors that were talking to me. And they said, you know, at least now you know for your next pregnancy. Um and I didn't take that very well because he was still alive and kicking in my stomach when they were like, oh, well, your next pregnancy, here's what you can do. Um, so that was really frustrating. But after I hemorrhaged, they told me that there weren't really any concerns. They were mostly just focused on like, um, when you get pregnant again, everything will be fine. And so that's kind of what I was told. That's, oh, again, it just feels so heartless, doesn't it? I mean, and I remember actually going into my my daughter was still born and we went in to get the post-mortem results from the hospital I think it was about sort of six or eight weeks later and the bereavement midwife actually said to me as we were leaving she was like oh well you know go on holiday have a nice time have a few drinks and then you know you'll be back in here and we'll see you with your next baby before Christmas and oh I was just gosh. like like yes at some point in the future I would like to have another child but actually this meeting is about my baby who's died and I want to know what happened to her you know and that is the most important thing in my life right now so yeah I I I find it very strange how some people expect you to just kind of keep going walk on on to the next one this one hasn't worked out so get on with the next one yeah and it was just I don't know how anyone can just do that, especially those who I feel like if you deal with pregnancy for a living, um, you deal with loss as well because, you know, Mm. one in four will have a pregnancy loss. And so I just don't understand how there's no like humanizing there or compassion. Mm. And what were those first few weeks of grief like for you after you had to to leave him and go home alone? Um, I would say the first few days I was extremely depressed. I didn't know, um, like what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I kind of thought like, I wouldn't say I was suicidal, but I was very much not in love with life. I did not want to, um, continue life without my baby. And I didn't know what to do. I had all his things in my house. Um, I had been planning a baby shower. I was only 20 weeks at the time, but I was planning for like the future. And so I didn't really know what to do. But after the first few days, I kind of decided that um, the way that I grieved my first two pregnancies was not working out for me. I kind of just let everything go to the back of my mind and didn't deal with it. Um, And I decided to make an intentional decision to ultimately like truly grieve in whatever way that meant. So whether it made people uncomfortable, whether it hurt people's feelings, I just kind of decided that I was going to do whatever felt right and to actually feel in that moment and I think that's ultimately what um has kept me here that's uh that's an amazing attitude to have just a few days after your son has died because I think I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this who are like I didn't get out of bed for the first 
two weeks or months or whatever. And I think one thing I noticed from looking through your your blog, your Instagram post and your story is how much you've done to keep Onyx in your life and remember him and how, you know, a lot of that you did so soon. So that that kind of ties with what you were saying about this kind of choosing how you were going to grieve and being intentional about it. And the first thing I wanted to touch on, actually, is a photo shoot that you took part in just a few weeks after his birth for the fourth trimester bodies project. Could you tell us a bit about that project and how you got involved and how it felt being in a room full of mothers with other babies? Yeah, the fourth trimester bodies project, um, they go around the country and do different photo shoots of people postpartum anywhere between like a few days to like however many years later. Um, And you can include your baby or not, but they're just photos to show um, what real postpartum bodies are like and share our stories. And so I had heard about them on social media. And so when they were coming to my city, I decided to participate. But at the time, um, it was a couple days after Onyx had died that I heard that they were here and there were some remaining spots. And I didn't know if I wanted to go or not, but I felt like sharing... um, his story was really important. And I knew that I hadn't read a lot of stories of people who um, were sharing their stories postpartum after loss specifically, because we still go through the same things with our bodies, right? Even though we don't have a baby in our Mm -hmm. arms. So when I went to the photo shoot, um, I was really nervous. I went alone and um, everyone else there had a baby or a young child. And it was really, really difficult. It was a few days um, or a few weeks. It was two weeks, I believe, after Onyx had died. And I had not held another baby since him. And I had not really seen another baby either. And so it was really difficult. But there's um, a process at the beginning where you share your story, however much you want to share. And I think that's ultimately the reason that I started my blog was because um, a majority of the people there had had a miscarriage at some point. And I was kind of shocked that I had never heard anyone talk about a miscarriage, especially if you already have a living child. I'd never heard anyone talk about loss before. And that's kind of what made me decide to um, talk about Onyx's story more. And you do have a couple of very beautiful photos of you that really... Lovely photos. And although, obviously, you didn't have the baby in your arms, you had, I think, was it his little diaper or his little hat with you? Yeah. um, At the hospital, the nurses dressed him in, like, a little cloth diaper and a little hat. And that's what I I brought with me for the photo shoot so that I was holding something. Yeah. That must have been so hard. I I have a huge amount of admiration for you for – I mean, not just for, you know, bearing your body for this project and for the yeah. camera just two weeks after giving birth, which, as you say, is a big deal, but also for, I guess, like, acknowledging that and including him in it, um, you know, and, and you know, being that one person in the room who, who wasn't holding a living child in their arms. So that was amazing. Yeah, thank you. Um, the photographer, Ash Luna, they were really great. And at the time, they were actually pregnant with their rainbow baby. And I think that gave me a lot of hope that, um, you know, this wasn't going to be the end of my pregnancy journey. But um, yeah, it was really difficult. But looking back, I'm really, really glad I did it. Mm-hmm. And you, you've mentioned your blog, and you've got some great blog posts on there. And one of the things you 
you also did a few months after Onyx's death was the Friends of Onyx project. So could you tell us a bit about that and perhaps how it helped you connect with other grieving parents and whether you found that useful in terms of working through your own grief? So um, when I started my blog, I was able to connect with more parents, especially on Instagram of people who had lost their baby or an older child. And I learned that not everyone was given the space that I was to grieve and um, not everyone was like able to process their feelings in the way that they wanted to, whether because they have other living children or um, their family wasn't supportive or they had to go back to work right away, whatever the reason was. And so I wanted to create a space where other people could share their baby similar to how I was sharing Onyx. And so um, it was a public way for people to submit their baby's name and birth date or whatever information that they wanted to, and then their baby would forever be on my blog, um, but also um, have photos to represent. Because I know a lot of people um, have really early miscarriages and they aren't giving anything tangible. And so my thoughts was that that was a tangible way for them. Oh, that's lovely. And did you find it did you find it helpful talking to other people about your experiences and your son and, and finding out about their experiences? Yeah, I think it was, I resonated with a lot of people and I just, it was very easy to just like, I didn't have to explain myself. I didn't have to explain why I felt the way I did. Um, you know, people just got it right away. And so I think that was um, a space that I wanted to create. And that was really helpful for me because I was tired of having to explain like, no, I'm not over it. I'm never going to be over it. Um, no, I'm not going to do this or do that. And so it was really helpful to help other people, but also help myself in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing, which is is something um, quite unique that I haven't seen before, which I'd like to come on to talk about, is the Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos. Sorry, my pronunciation is probably yeah. shambolic. <laughs> uh, so forgive me for that. But it's which I know is a big celebration in Latin America, but it's not something that is so well known over here unless you're part of that community, you know, in the UK. Could you tell us a bit more about what the the celebration and the festival is and what you did to honor Onyx's memory after his death during that time? Yeah, so um, I'm Mexican. And in my local community, there's a really big day of the day celebration every year where you can display what's called ofrendas. Um, and in English, that translates to like an offering, but it's a display. Um, and there's lots of like specific traditions for it. But it's basically a display where you honor loved ones who've passed. Um, oftentimes, grandparents are on there, you don't see a lot of babies. But there is actually a day on November 1st called... Um, Day of the Little Angels. And it's a day specific to honor um, children that have passed and the day after is to honor everyone else. But it's believed that um, young ones are like just so excited to see their family that they come early. And um, so we put on an offering for them and it'll like display things like toys or things we bought for them, their photos, things like that. And um, since that's something that I had already been doing in my family, um, I wanted to honor Onyx in that way. And it's a way to um, share him publicly every year, even with those who may find me talking about him uncomfortable other times during the year. For a day of the dead, people tend to be more um, understanding. And I thought that including other babies would be a special way to um, honor others as well. 
I think I, both, I think that's amazing. And I will include the link to your blog post, which has got photos of um, of your friend in there because it, it's fantastic. I just oh, love all you. the detail and everything you've included into that. I think, you, you know, you've done that the last few years. Just, I guess, kind of going back slightly, how what was the sort of response you got from family and friends in terms of how you decided to talk publicly about your son and your grief and what kind of support did you get from them or lack of support if that was the case? Yeah, so for my immediate family who actually met Onyx, um, there were four of them. Um, So two of my siblings, my stepdad and my mom, they um, were all pretty supportive of whichever way I grieved. if I didn't want to talk about him, then they didn't talk about him. If I did, then they would be very supportive and active in the conversation. Um, and they helped me with your friend and things like that. Um, and so I, I feel really lucky that they were very supportive. And I often wonder if they hadn't met Onyx or hadn't been there for my pregnancy, if that would still be the case. Because what I've heard from other people is that not everyone's very supportive. But um, outward facing um I had a lot of friends that just like stopped talking to me all of a sudden and um, I actually had one friend who said that um, she didn't want to talk to me afterwards because she was scared that um if she talked to me that her baby would die and it is that like comment is something that I've gotten in different ways um since then too is like this idea of like catching baby loss from people as if that's a thing um And so that was um, probably one of the hardest parts was coming from people outside of my immediate family where they thought that um, I was contagious, basically. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And, and also so hard, because not only are you then losing, you're, you're grieving your baby who's died, you're also grieving those friendships you've lost and potentially quite close friends, you know, people you've known for years who no longer want to be in your life. Yeah, it was a really confusing thing because um, I I didn't even know that people would feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I expected that people would be uncomfortable because I, I am so public when I talk about Onyx, but I didn't expect that I would get that type of response. Um, on the good side, I did get a few friends reaching out who told me, you know, um, I'm so sorry, and I had a miscarriage, or I recently had a, um, a loss, and that was something that, like, I didn't know that about them, and so I think in sharing, um, I learned a lot about people that I've been friends with for years that I didn't know part of their story. Yeah, and I think there is still this this whole silence around baby loss isn't there um so in the UK the the sort of statistic is that one in four pregnancies ends in loss and so you know you can look around your friendship group and you think they've all had this kind of perfect pregnancy journey perhaps but statistically at least you know you must know some people everyone knows some people who have suffered a loss but often a lot of people keep that quite private and and don't discuss it, which is, well, which is something I think we're both probably trying to change a bit in terms of speaking out. Yeah. um, When I thought about it in like a visual sense, like if, you know, 10 people were lined up, how many people have had a miscarriage or a stillbirth or a loss in some type of way, or know someone who has, like we, like you said, we all know someone. Um, And so it's really odd that we don't talk about it if the statistic is so big. 
Mm, yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't know, you talk about you had the flu or you've had chicken pox, you know, everyone has chicken pox. But yeah, it's a, there is still a bit of a taboo, I think, around that. Um, so moving on a bit. So you do you do now have your rainbow baby. When did you start trying for a baby after Onyx died? And how was your journey to get pregnant with your daughter? So um, I got pregnant with her four months after Onyx died. He died at the end of August. And um, the day after Christmas is actually when I found out I was pregnant with her. Um, I'd been having symptoms for a while, but my thought, and I think this is what loss does to you, is that if I found out I was pregnant on Christmas and then I miscarried, that Christmas would forever be like a terrible day for me. So I didn't want to test. But um, yeah, so four months later and her pregnancy was extremely, extremely difficult. Um, I was very high risk. um, And I um, was told multiple times that she was going to die. I was told that I was going to miscarry her. I was told that she was going to be premature and too premature, just like Onyx was. Um, Up until like she was on my chest, I was actually told she was going to die even during labor. Um, So it was a very, very difficult pregnancy. Mm. And I guess emotionally as well as physically, I mean, you must have been after having, you know, two miscarriages plus, um, you know, your your son being born and die, dying in your arms. You must have been a wreck. How how did you try to manage your anxiety during your pregnancy with her? So um, I think reaching out to the baby loss community on Instagram is probably what helped me a lot. There were several people who were um, around the same uh, weeks that I was pregnant and pregnant after a stillbirth specifically. And so um, just being able to talk to people who were going through similar things was very helpful Um, and documenting my pregnancy online is what I tried to fill my mind with so that I had something to focus on because um, it was very, very difficult because I wanted to continue to parent Onyx in some way, but being pregnant, um, I was really scared that I would lose her. And, uh, you know, we hear that stress can um, cause miscarriage and things like that. And so I kind of had to take a step back from like the Friends of Onyx project and things like that, because I feared that um, it would cause me to go into a depression in a different way and possibly lose her. Yeah, and that's com- that's completely understandable. I mean, pregnancy after loss in 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 the sort of when you have the most simplest straightforward pregnancy i think must be hard enough let alone where you have a really difficult complicated pregnancy and you're i mean particularly if you're being told your ba- your baby is going to die or or might die um and literally that i mean that must have just absorbed absorbed your whole life and rightly so um, but I did, I read a really interesting blog on your website about how you involved Onyx in Lizuli's birth. So could you talk a bit more about that? Because it's not, it's not really something that I've had a guest talk about before in terms of how they've involved their previous children um, in, you know, in their rainbow baby's birth. So could you talk about that and how perhaps it helped you? Yeah, so I was looking at a lot of ways on like Pinterest that people included older siblings in their child's birth. Um, And so I kind of tweaked those to include Onyx in a different way. So some of the ways is I brought his photo with to um, when I was giving birth, I brought um, his bear that currently holds his ashes. Um, I brought um, some banners that I made of like pregnancy after loss affirmations that would like keep me focused on like 
my baby is not going to die, you know, just to stay um, the least anxious as possible. And I also um, like Lazuli's going home outfit is what they're called here. I don't know if that's the same in the UK, but mm -hmm. when you go home, um, it had it says little sister on it. And so that was really important to me to include her as, you know, her own person, but also um, Onyx as like her big brother. And so um, I did that. And then also with her name, it's kind of um, similar to Onyx. You know, they're both gemstones. And so... Um, those are some of the ways. I believe I also included um, the little lamb that I was talking about earlier that smells like onyx. Um, I included that in her announcement photo. Oh, lovely. And did you, how did you find the staff treated you, I guess, during your pregnancy and your birth in terms of taking account to your previous experience? Did they mention onyx by name? You know, did they, did they talk about him in a sympathetic manner? Were they, did, were they aware of that, I guess, while they were supporting you through the, through the birth? Yeah. Um, I had a really amazing doula at my birth. And I think, um, when I was pregnant, I talked to her a lot about making sure that my birth was not referred to as like my first pregnancy or my first mm -hmm. time giving birth, um, that Onyx was referred to not as a loss or as something that happened, but as like a member of our family. So like there was a sign on the door that said, um, I don't remember the exact language, but it referred to Onyx as a member of our family that's missing. Um, so people, when they entered the room, they knew that um, this was not my first time giving birth. And so I wasn't referred to as a first time mom. Um, and for the most part, people were very supportive. Um, I had, uh, I think my mom wrote Onyx's name on the board where it said support people. And so everyone that was in the room was mentioned on there. Um, and so everyone was pretty supportive. I think in postpartum, it was a little bit different because, you know, there's staff transitions. Um, but the nurses were really great. They went over my birth plan, which included um, like talking about Onyx and things like that. Um, so that was really great. Oh, fantastic. And I imagine that parenting after loss must be quite a, an emotional experience and a sort of mixed experience. Could you talk a bit about your experience of parenting Lazuli and, and how it's, I guess, affected your grief for Onyx and and how you kind of, I guess, try and parent both your children? I think um, sometimes I feel like parenting after a loss has been harder for me than the initial weeks after Onyx died um, because I feel like I constantly have to relive that initial moment because um, – I have a living baby now and whenever she does something new, um, I think about Onyx or whenever we go out and I see siblings who would be similar to his age and her age, um, I think about him. And so it's a different way that I have to process my grief because um, not that I, like, I think about Onyx more, I think about him the same that I did before I had her, but I think about him in a different way because I know more what I'm missing because I get to experience those things with her. Um, and so it's probably one of the most difficult things that I've ever done as parent after loss. Um, like I said, it's kind of like reliving those moments over and over again. And at the same time, you've got Lizzie Lee there, who is, you know, a very active baby coming on to, to toddler and, and kind of, I guess, physically demands your attention a lot in terms of, you know, her presence. And obviously she needs you to do things for her, you know, constantly, whereas, Onyx is not present in the same way in terms of having the same sort of physical demands on your life. Yeah, it's it's an odd combination. And I kind of look at it similar as if he were still here. Um, you know, like, 
the younger baby demands more of your intention in different ways. And sometimes the older siblings get put in the back. Um, and so I try to look at it like that, like how can I continue to honor him and his legacy while still parenting a baby who has higher needs at the moment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Well, we are pretty much out of time. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Would you like to just finish by telling people where they can connect with you online and find out more about Onyx and Lazuli and your little family? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Facebook as a rainbow from Onyx. And then I have a YouTube channel by the same name. Um, and then my blog is a rainbow from onyx.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing Onyx's story, Ariel. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>